Section 18 of The Rivals of Sherlock Holmes, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Rivals of Sherlock Holmes, Volume 1. The Assyrian Rejuvenator, by Clifford Ashton. At six o'clock struck, the procession of the undined began to stream beneath the electric arcade which graces the entrance to Christiani's. The doors swung unceasingly. The mirrors no longer reflected a mere squadron of tables and erect serviettes. A hum of conversation now mingled with the clatter of knives and the popping of corks, and the brisk scurry of waiters' slippers replaced the stillness of the afternoon. Although the restaurant had been crowded some time before he arrived, Mr. Romney Pringle had secured his favorite seat opposite the feminine print after Gainsborough, and in the intervals of feeding listened to a selection from Maschiani through a convenient electrophone, price sixpence in the slot. It was a warm night for the time of year, a muggy spell having succeeded a week of biting northeast wind, and as the evening wore on the atmosphere grew somewhat oppressive, more particularly to those who had dined well. Its effects were not very visible on Pringle, whose complexion, a small port wine mark on his right cheek its only blemish, was of that fairness which imparts to its fortunate possessor the air of youth until long past forty especially in a man who shaves clean, and habitually goes to bed before two in the morning. As the smoke from Pringle's Havana wreathed upwards to an extractor, his eye fell, not for the first time, upon a diner at the next table. He was elderly, probably on the wrong side of sixty, but with his erect features might easily have claimed a few years' grace, while the retired soldier spoke in his scrupulous neatness, and in the trim of his carefully tended mustache. He had finished his dinner some little time, but remained seated, studying a letter with an intentness more due to its subject than to its length, which Pringle could see was by no means excessive. At last, with a gesture almost equally compounded of weariness and disgust, he rose and was helped into his overcoat by a waiter, who held the door for him in the obsequious manner of his kind. The languid attention which Pringle at first bestowed on his neighbor had by this time given place to a deeper interest, and as the swing doors closed behind the old gentleman, he scarcely repressed a start when he saw lying beneath the vacant table the identical letter which had received such careful study. His first impulse was to run after the old gentleman and restore the paper, but by this time he had disappeared, and the waiter being also invisible, Pringle sat down and read, The Assyrian Rejuvenator Company, 82, Barbican, East Central, April 5th. Dear Sir, we regret to hear of the failure of the rejuvenator in your hands. This is possibly due to your not having followed the directions for its use sufficiently closely, but I must point out that we do not guarantee its infallible success. As it is an expensive preparation, we do not admit the justice of your contention that our charges are exorbitant. In any case, we cannot entertain your request to return the whole or any part of the fees. Should you act upon your threat to take proceedings for the recovery of the same, we must hold your good self responsible for any publicity which may follow your trial of the preparation. Yours faithfully, Henry Jacobs, Secretary. Lieutenant Colonel Sandstrom, 272 Piccadilly West. To Pringle, this businesslike communication hardly seemed to deserve so much consideration as Colonel Sandstrom had given it. But having read and pondered over it afresh, he walked back to his chambers in Furnival's Inn. He lived at number 33, on the left as you enter from Holborn, and anyone who, scaling the stone stairs, reached the second floor, might observe on the entrance to the front set of chambers the legend Mr. Romney Pringle, Literary Agent. 
According to high authority, the reason of being of the literary agent is to act as a buffer between the ravening publisher and his prey. But although a very fine oak bureau with capacious pigeonholes stood conspicuously in Pringle's sitting-room, it was tenanted by no rolls of manuscript or typewritten sheets. Instead, little or no business appeared to be transacted in the chambers. The buffer was at present idle, if it could be said to have ever had worked. It was resting, to use the theatrical expression. Mr. Pringle was an early riser, and as nine o'clock chimed the next morning from the brass lantern clock which ticked sedately on a mantle unencumbered by the usual litter of a bachelor's quarters, he had already spent some time in consideration of last night's incident, and a further study of the letter had only served thoroughly to arouse his curiosity, and decided him to investigate the affair of the mysterious rejuvenator. Unlocking a cupboard in the bottom of the bureau, he disclosed a regiment of bottles and jars. Sprinkling a few drops from one onto a hare's foot, he succeeded, with a little friction, in entirely removing the port wine mark from his cheek. Then from another vial, he saturated a sponge and rubbed it into his eyebrows, which turned in the process from their original yellow to a jetty black. From a box of several, he selected a waxed mustache, that most facile item of a disguise, and having attached it with a few drops of spirit gum, covered his scalp with a black wig, which, as is commonly the case, remained an aggressive fraud in spite of the most assiduous adjustment. Satisfied with the completeness of his disguise, he sallied out in search of the offices of the Assyrian rejuvenator, affecting a military bearing which his slim but tall and straight-backed figure readily enabled him to assume. "'My name is Parkins, Major Parkins,' said Pringle, as he opened the door of a mean-looking room on the second floor of number 82, Barbican. He addressed an oleogenous-looking gentleman, whose curly locks and beard suggested the wings bowls of Nineveh, and who appeared to be the sole representative of the concern. The latter bowed politely, and handed him a chair. "'I have been asked,' Pringle continued, "'by a friend who saw your advertisement to call upon you for some further information. Now the subject of rejuvenation being a delicate one, especially where ladies are concerned, the business of the company was mainly transacted through the post. So seldom, indeed, did a client desire a personal interview, that the Assyrian-looking gentleman jumped to the conclusion that his visitor was interested in quite another manner. "'Ah, yes, you refer to Pelosia,' he said briskly. "'Allow me to read you an extract from the prospectus.' And before Pringle could reply, he proceeded to read from a small leaflet with unctuous elocution. "'Pelosia, the sovereign reverie of mud has long been used with the greatest success in the celebrated baths of Schwabach and Frasenbad.' the proprietors of Pelosia having noted the beneficial effect which many of the lower animals derive from the consumption of earth with their food, have been led to investigate the eternal uses of mud. This success which has crowned the treatment of some of the longest-standing cases of dyspepsia, the disease so characteristic of this neurotic age, has induced them to admit the world at large to its benefits. To thoroughly safeguard the public, the proprietors have secured the sole right to the alluvial deposits of a stream remote from human habitation, and consequently above any suspicion of contamination. Careful analysis has shown that the deposit in this particular locality, consisting of finely divided mineral particles, practically free from organic admixture, is calculated to give the most gratifying results. The proprietors are prepared to quote special terms for public institutions. Many thanks, said Pringle, as the other momentarily paused for breath, but I think you are under a slight misapprehension. 
I called on you with reference to the Assyrian Rejuvenator. Have I mistaken the offices? Pray excuse my absurd mistake. I am secretary of the Assyrian Rejuvenator Company, who are also the proprietors of Pelosia. And in evident concern, he regarded Pringle fixedly. It was not the first time he had known a diffident person to assume an interest in the senility of an absent friend, and he mentally decided that Pringle's waxed mustache, its blue blackness speaking loudly of hair dye, together with the unmistakable wig, were evidence of the decrepitude for which his new customer presumably sought the company's assistance. Ours, my dear sir, he resumed, leaning back in his chair, and placing the tips of his fingers in opposition. Ours is a world-renowned specific for removing the ravages which time effects in the human frame. It is a secret which has been handed down for many generations in the family of the original proprietor. Its success is frequently remarkable, and its absolute failure is impossible. It is not a drug, it is not a cosmetic, yet it contains the properties of both. It is agreeable and soothing to use, and being best administered during the hours of sleep, does not interfere with the ordinary avocations of everyday life. The price is so moderate, a ten and sixpence, including the government stamp, that it could only prove remunerative with an enormous sale. If you, ah, on behalf of your friend, would care to purchase a bottle, I shall be most happy to explain its operation. Mr. Pringle laid a half-sovereign and a sixpence on the table, and the secretary, diving into a large packing case which stood on one side, extracted a parcel. This contained a cardboard box, adorned with a representation of Blake's preposterous illustration to The Grave, in which a centenarian, on crutches, is hobbling into a species of banker's strong-room with a rocky top, whereupon is seated a youth clothed in nothing and with an ecstatic expression. This, said Mr. Jacobs impressively, is the entire apparatus. And he opened the box, displaying a moderately-sized phial and a spirit lamp with a little tin dish attached. On retiring to rest, a teaspoonful of the contents of the bottle is poured into the receptacle above the lamp, which is then lighted, and the preparation being vaporized is inhaled by the patient. It is best to concentrate the thoughts on some object of beauty whilst the delicious aroma soothes the patient to sleep. But how does it act? inquired the major a trifle impatiently. In this way, replied the imperturbable secretary, remember that the appearance of age is largely due to wrinkles, that is to say, to the skin losing its elasticity and fullness. So true is it that beauty is only skin deep. Here he laughed gaily. The joints grow stiff from loss of their natural tone, the figure stoops, and the vital organs decline their functions from the same cause. In a word, old age is due to loss of elasticity, and that is the very property which the rejuvenator imparts to the system, if inhaled for a few hours daily. Mr. Pringle diplomatically succeeded in maintaining his gravity, while the merits of the rejuvenator were expounded, and it was not until he had bidden Mr. Jacobs a courteous farewell, and was safely outside the office, that he allowed the fastening of his mustache to be disturbed by an expansive grin. About nine o'clock the same evening, the housekeeper of the Barbican offices was returning from market. Her thoughts centered on the savory piece of fried fish she was carrying home for dinner. Mrs. Smith, said a man's voice behind her, as she produced her latchkey. My name's Odges, she replied unguardedly, dropping the key in her agitation. You're the housekeeper, aren't you? said the stranger, picking up the key and handing it to her politely. Lor, sir, you did give me a turn, she faltered. Very sorry, I'm sure. I only want to know where I can find Mr. Jacobs, of the Assyrian Rejuvenator Company. Well, sir, he told me I wasn't to give his address to anyone, 
Not that I know it either, sir, for I always send the letters to Mr. Weeks. I see you're not found fault with. I know he won't mind you telling me. A sovereign clinked against the latch-key in her palm. For a second she hesitated. Then her eye caught the glint of the gold, and she fell. All I know, sir, is that when Mr. Jacobs is away, I send the letters, and a rare lot there are, to Mr. Newton Weeks, at the Northumberland Avenue Hotel. Is he one of the firm? I don't know, sir, but there's no one comes here but Mr. Jacobs. Thank you very much, and good night, said the stranger. And he strode down Barbican, leaving Mrs. Odges, staring at the coin in her hand, as if doubting whether, like fairy gold, it might not disappear even as she gazed. The next day Mr. Jacobs received a letter at his hotel. April 7th. Sir, my good friend Colonel Sandstream informs me he has communicated with the police, and has sworn an information against you in respect of the monies you have obtained from him, as he alleges, by false pretenses. Although I am convinced that his statements are true, a fact which I can more readily grasp after my interview with you today, I give you this warning, in order that you may make your escape before it is too late. Do not misunderstand my motives. I have not the slightest desire to save you from the punishment you so richly deserve. I am simply anxious to rescue my old friend from the ridiculous position he will occupy before the world, should he prosecute you. Your obedient servant, Joseph Parkins, Major. Newton Weeks, Esquire, Northumberland Avenue Hotel. Mr. Jacobs read this declaration of war with very mixed feelings. So his visitor of yesterday was the friend of Colonel Sandstream, obviously come to get up evidence against him. Knowing old dog, that Sandstream. But then how had they run him to earth? That looked as if the police had got their fingers in the pie. Mrs. Odges was discreet. She would never have given the address to any but the police. It was annoying, though, after all his precautions. Seemed as if the game was really up at last. Well, it was bound to come some day, and he had been in tighter places before. He could hardly complain. The rejuvenator had been going very well lately. But suppose the whole thing was a plant, a dodge to intimidate him. He read the letter through again. The writer had been careful to omit his address, but it seemed plausible enough on the face of it. Anyhow, whatever the major's real motive might be, he couldn't afford to neglect the warning, and the one clear thing was that London was an unhealthy place for him just at the present. He would pack up, so as to be ready for all emergencies, and drive around to Barbican and reconnoiter. Then, if things looked fishy, he could go to Cannon Street and catch the 11.5 Continental. He'd show them that Harry Jacobs wasn't the man to be bluffed out of his claim. Mr. Jacobs stopped his cab some doors from the rejuvenator office, and was in the act of alighting when he paused, spellbound at the apparition of Pringle. The latter was loitering outside number 82, and as the cab drew up, he ostentatiously consulted a large pocketbook, and glanced several times from its pages to the countenance of his victim, as if comparing a description. Attired in a long overcoat, a bowler hat, and wearing thick boots of a constabulary pattern to the nervous imagination of Mr. Jacobs, he afforded startling evidence of the police interest in the establishment. And this idea was confirmed when Pringle, as if satisfied with his scrutiny, drew a paper from his pocketbook and made a movement in his direction. Without waiting for further developments, Mr. Jacob retreated into the cab and hoarsely whispered through the trap door, Cannon Street, as hard as you can go. The cabman wrenched the horse's head round. He had been an interested spectator of the scene, and sympathized with the evident desire of his fare to escape what appeared to be the long arm of the law. At this moment, a crawling hansom came up, and was promptly hailed by Pringle. 
"'Follow that cab, and don't lose it on any account,' he cried, as he stood on the step, and pointed vigorously after the receding hansom. While Mr. Jacobs careened down Barbican, his cabman looked back in time to observe this expressive pantomime, and with the instinct of a true sportsman lashed the unfortunate brute into a hand-gallop. But the observant eye of a policeman checked this moderate exhibition of speed just as they were rounding the sharp corner into Aldersgate Street, and had not a lumbering railway van intervened, Pringle would have caught him up and brought the farce to an awkward finish. But the van saved the situation. The moment's respite was all that the chase needed, and in response to the promises of largesse, frantically roared by Mr. Jacobs through the trap-door, he was soon bounding and bumping over the wood pavement with Pringle well in the rear. Then ensued a mad stampede down Aldersgate Street. In and out, between the crowded files of vans and buses, the two cabs wound a zigzag course, the horses slipping and skating over the greasy surface, or plowing up the mud as their bits skidded them within inches of a collision. In vain did policemen roar to them to stop. The order fell on heedless ears. In vain did officious boys wave intimidating arms, or make futile grabs at the harness of the apparent runaways. Did a cart dart unexpectedly out from a side street, the inevitable disaster failed to come off. Did an obstacle loom dead ahead, it melted into thin air as they approached. Triumphantly they piloted the narrowest of straits, and dashed unscathed in St. Martin's Le Grand. There was a block in Newgate Street, and the cross-traffic was stopped. Mr. Jacobs' hansom nipped through a temporary gap, grazing the pole of an omnibus, and being lustily anathematized in the process. But Pringle's cabman, attempting to follow, was imperiously waved back by a policeman. "'No go, I'm afraid, sir,' was the man's comment, as they crossed into St. Paul's churchyard after a three minutes' wait. "'I can't see him nowhere.' "'Never mind,' said Pringle cheerfully. "'Go to Charing Cross Telegraph Office.' There he sent the following message. "'To Mrs. Hodges, 82, Barbican. Called away to country. Mr. Weeks will take charge of office. Jacobs.' About two the same afternoon, Pringle, wearing the wig and mustache of Major Parkins, rang the housekeeper's bell at 82. "'I'm Mr. Weeks,' he stated, as Mrs. Hodges emerged from the bowels of the earth. "'Mr. Jacobs has had to leave town, and has asked me to take charge of the office.' "'Oh, yes, sir. I've had a telegram from Mr. Jacobs to say so. You know the way up, I suppose.' "'I think so. But Mr. Jacobs forgot to send me the office key.' "'I'd better lend you mine, then, sir.' till you can hear from Mr. Jacobs. She fumbled in her voluminous pocket. I hope nothing's the matter with him. Oh, dear, no. He found he needed a short holiday, that's all, Pringle reassured her, and taking the key from the confiding woman, he climbed to the second floor. Sitting down at the secretarial desk, he sent a quick glance round the office. A poor creature, that Jacobs, he reflected, for all his rascality, or he wouldn't have been scared so easily, and he drew a piece of wax from his pocket and took a careful impression of the key. He had not been in possession of the rejuvenator offices for very long, before he discovered that Mr. Jacobs' desire to break out in a fresh place had proved abortive. It will be remembered that on the occasion of his interview with that gentleman, Mr. Jacobs assumed that Pringle's visit had reference to Pelosia, whose virtues he extolled in a leaflet composed in his own very pronounced style. A large package in the office Pringle found to contain many thousands of these effusions, which had apparently been laid aside for some considerable time. From the absence in the daily correspondence of any inquiries thereafter, it was clear that the public had failed to realize the advantages of the internal administration of mud, so that Mr. Jacobs had been forced to stick to the swindle that was already in existence. After all, the latter was a paying concern, eminently so. Besides, the patent medicine trade is rather overdone. 
The price of the Assyrian rejuvenator was such as to render the early cashing of remittances an easy matter. Ten and sixpence being a sum for which the average banker demurs to honor a check, the payments were usually made in postal orders, and Pringle acquired a larger faith in Carlyle's opinion of the majority of his fellow creatures as he cashed the previous day's takings at the general post office on his way up to Barbican each morning. The business was indeed a flourishing one, and his satisfaction was only alloyed by the probability of some legal interference, at the assistance of Colonel Sandstream, with the further operations for the company. But for the present fortune smiled, and Pringle continued energetically to dispatch parcels of the rejuvenator in response to the daily shower of postal orders. In this indeed he had little trouble, for he had found many gross of parcels duly packed and ready for posting. One day, while engaged in the process, which had grown quite a mechanical one by that time, he listened absently to a slow but determined step which ascended the stairs and paused on the landing outside. Above, on the third floor, was an importer of cigars made in Germany, and the visitor evidently delayed the further climb until he had regained his wind. Presently, after a preliminary pant or two, he got under way again, but proceeded only as far as the rejuvenator door, to which he gave a peremptory thumb, and, opening it, walked in without further ceremony. There was no need for him to announce himself. Pringle recognized him at first glance, although he had never seen him since the eventful evening at Christiana's restaurant. "'I'm Colonel Sandstream,' he growled, looking round him savagely. "'Delighted to see you, sir,' said Pringle with assurance. "'Pray be seated,' he added politely. "'Whom am I speaking to?' "'My name is Newton Weeks. I am—' "'I don't want to see you,' interrupted the Colonel testily. "'I want to see the secretary of this concern. I've no time to waste, either.' "'I regret to say that Mr. Jacobs—' "'Ah, yes, that's the name. Where is he?' again interrupted the old gentleman. "'Mr. Jacobs is at present out of town. "'Well, I'm not going to run after him. When will he be here again?' "'It is quite impossible for me to tell. "'But I was just now going to say that as the managing director of the company, "'I am also acting as secretary during Mr. Jacobs' absence. "'What do you say your name is?' demanded the other, "'still ignoring the chair which Colonel had offered him. "'Newton Weeks.' "'Newton Weeks,' repeated the Colonel.' making a note of the name on the back of an envelope. Managing director, added Pringle suavely. Well, Mr. Weeks, if you represent the company, this with a contemptuous glance from the middle of the room at his surroundings, I've called with reference to a letter you've had the impertinence to send me. What was the date of it? inquired Pringle innocently. I don't remember, snapped the colonel. Uh, may I ask what was the subject of the correspondence? Why, this confounded rejuvenator of yours, of course. You see, we have had a very large amount of correspondence concerning the rejuvenator, and I'm afraid, unless you have the letter with you, I've lost it or mislaid it somewhere. That is unfortunate. Unless you can remember the contents, I fear it will be quite impossible for me to do so. I remember them well enough. I'm not likely to forget them in a hurry. I asked you to return me the money your rejuvenator, as you call it, has cost me, because it's been quite useless, and in your reply you not only refused absolutely, but hinted that I dare not prosecute you. As Pringle made no reply, he continued more savagely, Would you like to hear my candid opinion of you? We are always pleased to hear the opinion of our clients. Pringle's calmness only appeared to exasperate the colonel the more. Well, sir, you shall have it. I consider that letter the most impudent attempt at blackmail that I have ever heard of. He ground out the words from between his clenched teeth in a voice of concentrated passion. Blackmail? echoed Pringle, allowing an expression of horror to occupy his countenance. Yes, sir, blackmail, asseverated the colonel, nodding his head vigorously. Of course, said Pringle, with a depreciating gesture, I am aware that some correspondence has passed between us, 
but I cannot attempt to remember every word of it. At the same time, although you are pleased to put such an unfortunate construction upon it, I am sure there is some misunderstanding in the matter. I must positively decline to admit that there has been any attempt on the part of the company of such a nature as you allege. Oh, so you don't admit it, don't you? Perhaps you won't admit taking pounds and pounds of my money for your absurd concoction, which hasn't done me the least bit of good in the world, nor ever will. And perhaps you won't admit refusing to return me my money, eh? Perhaps you won't admit daring me to take proceedings because it would show up what an ass I've been? Don't talk to me, sir. Ha! I'm really very sorry that this unpleasantness has arisen, began Pringle, but pleasant or unpleasant, sir, I'm going to stop your little game. I mislaid your letter or I'd have called upon you before this. As you're the managing director, I'm better pleased to see you than your precious secretary. Anyhow, I've come to tell you that you're a set of swindlers. Of swindlers, sir. I can make every allowance for your feelings, said Pringle, drawing himself up with an air of pain dignity, but I regret to see a holder of His Majesty's commission so deficient in self-control. Like your impertinence, sir, vociferated the veteran. I'll let the money go, and I'll prosecute the pair of you, no matter what it costs me. Yes, you and your rascally secretary, too. I'll go and swear an information against you this very day. He bounced out of the room, and explosively snorted downstairs. Pringle followed in the rear, and reached the outer door in time to hear him exclaim, Mansion House Police Court, to the driver of a motor cab, in which he appropriately clanked and rumbled out of sight. Returning upstairs, Pringle busied himself in making a bonfire of the last few days' correspondence. Then, collecting the last batch of postal orders, he proceeded to cash them at the general post office, and walked back to Furnival's Inn. After all, the farce couldn't have lasted much longer. Arrived at Furnival's Inn, Pringle rapidly divested himself of the wig and mustache, and assuming his official port wine mark, became once more the unemployed literary agent. It was now half past one, and after lunching lightly at a near restaurant, he lighted a cigar and strolled leisurely eastward. By the time he reached Barbican, three o'clock was reverberating from St. Paul's. He entered the private bar of a tavern nearly opposite, and sat down by a window which commanded a view of number 82. As time passed, and the quarters continued to strike in rapid succession, Pringle felt constrained to order further refreshment, and he was lighting a third cigar before his patience was rewarded. Happening to glance up at the second-floor window, he caught a glimpse of a strange man engaged in taking a momentary survey of the street below. The march of events had been rapid. He had evidently resigned the secretaryship not a moment too soon. Not long after the strange face had disappeared from the window, a four-wheeled cab stopped outside the tavern, and an individual wearing a pair of large blue spectacles and carrying a gladstone bag got out and carefully scrutinized the office of the rejuvenator. Mr. Jacobs, for it was he, did not intend to be caught napping this time. At length, being satisfied with the normal appearance of the premises, he crossed the road, and to Pringle's intense amusement disappeared into the house opposite. The spectator had not long to wait for the next act of the drama. About ten minutes after Mr. Jacobs' disappearance, the man who had looked out of the window emerged from the house and beckoned to the waiting cab. As it drew up at the door, a second individual came down the steps, fast holding Mr. Jacobs by the arm. The latter, in a very crestfallen guise, re-entered the vehicle, being closely followed by his captor, and the first man having his taken his seat with them, the party adjourned to a destination as to which Pringle had no difficulty in hazarding a guess. Satisfying the barmaid, he sallied into the street. The rejuvenator offices seemed once more to be deserted, and the postman entered in the course of his afternoon round. Pringle walked a few yards up the street, 
and then, crossing as the postman reappeared, turned back and entered the house boldly. Softly mounting the stairs, he knocked at the door. There was no response. He knocked again more loudly, and finally turned the handle. As he expected, it was locked securely, and satisfied that the coast was clear, he inserted his own replica of the key and entered. The books tumbled on the floor in confused heaps, the wide-open and empty drawers, and the overturned packing cases showed how thoroughly the place had been ransacked in the search for compromising evidence. But Pringle took no further interest in these things. The letter-box was the sole object of his attention. He tore open the batch of newly delivered letters, and cramming the postal orders into his pockets, then securing the correspondence behind a rifled package case, he silently locked the door. As he strolled down the street on a last visit to the general post office, the two detectives passed him on their way back in quest of the managing director. End of the Assyrian Rejuvenator by Clifford Ashton Recorded by Todd